Welcome, welcome back, everybody. Um, so this afternoon, um, we're going to have um, a lecture on the marginal, marginal productivity of capital. And um, after the break, we'll be addressing all of the questions that you will have, have had throughout the day. So from the first, lec first two lectures and, and this lecture. Okay. So uh, before we go on the concept of marginal productivity of capital, it's just worth considering a little bit um, the example that Professor talked about previously. Which is the uh, the scissors, the scissors and the uh, the hand. So scissors plus hand uh, is is like capital plus labour, and you have output. Okay, I'm not going to go into the the minutiae of how you measure output or this, that, and the other because it's it's not really relevant to what we're going to talk about exactly here. Okay. But the point is that you have output as a function of um, labour and uh, capital. And Professor said in the uh, first lecture, when he was talking about the marginal productivity of capital, if you just think of this as one entity, which has an output of whatever, silk handkerchiefs, say, the change in the total output to the addition of a unit of labour would be zero because there's only one pair of scissors. So you can't have two people using it at the same time. Sorry, <laughs> the marginal productivity of capital is zero. Okay, I haven't even defined what that is. Essentially, you can use the analogy the professor made with labour for capital. Okay, so the change in total output for the addition of one unit value of capital. So that's exactly the same analogy as we have with marginal productivity of labour. What I meant was that the total output here doesn't change if you add another pair of scissors because there's only one one pair of hands to use it. So the marginal productivity of capital in this basic, basic example is zero. But the total output might change if you have two people who take shifts to use it. You know, so the marginal productivity of labour is not necessarily zero. It might be, but it's not necessarily zero. But the marginal productivity uh, of capital is definitely zero in this example. Okay, so Professor mentioned it earlier as well. The whole point about this is that you're looking at how the total output changes for changing one variable, leaving everything else the same. And you do that exercise for each variable to get the total, the total marginality, as it were. And for those who do have a background in uh, mathematics or engineering, 
this will be familiar as the total derivative, okay, where you have a function of many variables and you take the, 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 the derivative of, with respect to each of those variables. But don't confuse that with doing partial differentiation on sets of data with assumptions, which is what most economists do. Okay? The concept of total differentiation is different from actually doing total differentiation. Okay? So, I'll just quote Professor here to make it clearer. We should think about marginal capital not as a definite piece of plant or equipment, but rather as a role to be cast. The cast is subject to change without notice. Even if no change in the, part of in the part of capital is contemplated, the concept of marginal capital has a role to play. Okay. So, again, like uh, we have the concept of ranking workers in terms of their productivity, uh, you can rank capital according to um, its productivity as well. And in a similar manner, capital which at the margin doesn't contribute to the total output uh, can be said to have negative marginal productivity. Okay, very broad concepts here, and I'm not talking about how you measure any of this at all. You can measure it, obviously, um, but it's not, um, it's not relevant to the, um, the discussion. Okay, so to just give an example to elaborate on that statement, think of a set of factories that produce a product, say Acme Oil. So you have a set of factories and you have total output. And total output can be measured in terms of the um, number of barrels of oil, for example. So that's easy to measure. Um, now, the point about marginal productivity is that you look at the addition of one unit of capital. Okay? It's very important to realise that. But in this example, it's okay because you just have the same factory, say five, making the same product, out of which the total output is whatever. So the addition of a marginal unit factory to six factories, looking at the change in total output, that's how you measure the marginal productivity of capital. Okay? So I hope that's, um, that's, that's clear. Um, now, this is a bit of a deviation from from the from the from from marginal productivity, but I'm going to talk a bit about the nature of capital formation um, itself. Okay, and so uh, for that we have to go back to first principles. We have to think about an isolated village, a very primitive isolated village. And all of these villagers have 
ends and they have means by which those, those ends are met. Um, wanting to get food, or sorry, wanting to stay alive is an end, a subjective end, and needing food is a consequence of that, and drink, etc., etc. So they would have primitive tools, you know, let's say um, a grinding bowl, excuse my, um, my artwork, maybe some sticks, you know, to get, to get um, fruit of high, high trees, something like that. Um, you know, I don't know, some round grinding stones, various bits and bobs, maybe a knife. So this can be assumed to be the capital of this village. And again, I'm not going into the, the nitty-gritty about measurement of the exchange value of these goods. It's not relevant to the concept I'm trying to explain here. And neither is the, the measurement of the output of this village. But the point is that it does have some kind of output, however you want to measure it. Okay. So, output. Now, you can consider this the set of all of the capital goods. And you can look at how the output changes. You know, there's no objective way of having a unit piece of capital here. But you could look at how the output changes for a change in each of these variables. Okay? So add one more grinding bowl, add one more stick, add one more knife, etc., etc. And you can look at how the total output in this uh, village changes. Okay, so that you could consider sort of like a um, like a vertical, like a vertical phenomenon. <coughs> vertical. Okay, but the point is that. Um, you also have the um, horizontal horizontal uh, element of capital good formation, which is basically just uh, rearranging rearranging these objects in particular ways. So if you were uh, particularly smart, you might arrange it into a, a cart, you know. But essentially it's, it's just a different rearrangement of, of these things, perhaps adding a few things which you didn't ascribe value to, but you do because they make this thing possible, you know. So in this way, um, you get the evolution of capital. And it's a subjective process, obviously. Um, but it's not often appreciated. Okay? That cart was, if you look at it, if you think about it, that cart was always there. Must have been. You just had to realize it. In the same way the jet engine was always there. 
save the, the actual knowledge of, of uh, knowing how to make it, or why you want it, in fact. But um, I think the point, is, the point is quite clear. So you have horizontal, just changing the objects that you know, the objects that make the set of capital goods, as it were, and then you have the rearrangement of those objects. And when you have, a, when you have exchange value, which is objective in as far as you can be objective, um, you can talk about the unit, marginal unit of capital. You can't talk about it in, in this particular example. Okay, um, so we're going to just move on a little bit um, from marginal productivity of capital um, to explain why it's important. Um, and I'm not going to go into the um, into the the details here. That's probably a job for professor at the end of at the end of the day with your questions. But um, marginal productivity of capital, which is essentially a spatial thing, rearranging spatial, rearranging objects in space, okay, and time, both have uh, their say in the interest rate spread, the interest rate bid offer spread. And von Mises um, didn't like that. He didn't, he, didn't, he didn't know of it not to like it, but he wouldn't have liked that. He wanted to uh, ascribe interest as a natural consequence of time, okay? as if time is some objective thing. <coughs> and he was making the confusion of time, which is a mental, a mental precipitation, with the objects used to measure time, which have changed throughout the centuries, from water clocks to atomic decay. Okay, there is nothing objective about time. But he wanted to assume that there was, and that was the building block for his theory of interest, to the exclusion of anything to do with the productivity of capital which, uh, if you think about it, isn't, isn't, isn't very fair. And he, um, I'm quoting Professor here, he chastised Eugene uh, von uh, Bombeuerck for including a chapter in his great work, Capital Interest, Surveying Productivity, productivity Theories of Interest. So I think that we'll get from Professor exactly where Ludwig von Mises criticised Eugene uh, von B.B. for uh, contemplating productivity of capital. Um, it's worth mentioning that um, Eugene von B.B. didn't complete it himself, but he was pretty much getting close to it. Okay. So, um, very interesting chart. Willie? Uh, you need to uh, switch the mouse. Okay. 
Um, so as I said earlier, you've got the two elements, and we'll be talking about this in detail later on. You've got two elements to the interest rate spread, the bid and the offer. And the bid is to do with time, marginal time preference, and the offer of interest is to do with marginal productivity, to do with space. So in that way, Professor combined time and space with the observation of Menger to give the, the most comprehensive theory of, uh, of interest available. So marginal productivity of capital rears its head um, by the uh, entrepreneur doing arbitrage between the bond market and the stock market. Okay? I hope everyone knows what a bond market and a stock market is. Um, and just to give you a bit of background on this chart, okay, the way that you have to think about um, the stock market is not in terms of its price. Okay? It doesn't mean anything. You don't quote, you don't have an argument about the stock market and base it on your value of its PE. Okay? That is an incorrect argument to have. And every broker does it. Every broker does it. The way that you should be looking at the equity market is through arbitrage, okay? through what we term the vertical spread. And that's the difference in earnings between bonds and stocks, which you can approximate, companies you can approximate by the stock market even though the stock market is not the company, but you can still approximate it. Okay? So, here we have a company called um, Procter & Gamble. And Procter & Gamble is worth, probably at the market, $150 billion, something like that. So, it's quite a big company. And it's been around for at least a century. And they make consumer goods, fast-moving consumer goods. The kind of goods which you can draw real bills upon. Okay? Um, so, what you've got there is you've got a... Um, ah, yes. I've done it in terms of yield. Okay. You've got the, uh, the yield of treasury bonds and the earnings yield of Procter & Gamble. Okay, now I've got the, earning, I've got the uh, earnings yields. Earnings yield of treasury bonds is just its interest rate, its market rate of interest. Because companies like Procter & Gamble uh, can issue debt at pretty much close to the, uh, the, the US government's market rate of debt. And here, this green line at the bottom here, is the, uh, the difference in the earnings yield between uh, Procter and & Gamble and Treasuries. And you can see that it's been going up quite aggressively since 2002, and it peaked in uh, 2008. And it seems to be, it's actually lower than that now. 
So this is the profit that you can make from uh, doing arbitrage between the bond and the stock market, effectively. And it's starting to uh, decrease that spread. So that basically means that um, mergers and acquisitions are growing in volume, uh, or should be growing in volume, which they are. Uh, as long as you can access the debt markets, which companies like Procter & Gamble can, uh, because there is an inordinate amount of demand for their kind of debt, uh, then, this, then this spread indicates that the stock market is probably nominally undervalued by a multiple of two times, two and a half times, something like that. Okay? So um, that's just something that I thought would be quite interesting to show. Don't think about the... Uh, don't look out the window and confuse Walmart the store with Walmart the company on the exchange, okay? Because for, if Walmart wanted to issue debt, for each dollar interest payment of debt they have to make, they would receive $65 in capital up front. And as long as they can get that dollar back without spending that 65 but anything lower, you're going to do it. Because it means more cash in your pocket. Okay, forget about what it actually is that you're doing. If you can sell something at five and buy it at two, it doesn't matter what the object is. It just happens to be the stock market in this case. And that is being... Um, and all of that is being evidenced um, by the spread. Um, so uh, that is um, pretty much it. There's just one more thing um, to mention um, as a side as a side point to the current the current uh, malaise that's going on. And that is this environment of uh, falling, falling interest rates, which has surprised a lot of people. Um, falling interest rates, um, falling interest rates. The the response to that from the sort of classical fund manager school is that um, that has to reverse at some point, because people will start building in inflation expectations, etc., etc., and they have to start rising. Um, not arguing with that. In real terms, that could certainly be very obvious. But in nominal terms, there is no way for the interest rate but down at the moment and for the uh, foreseeable future. Because wherever people think there won't be a bid, for government paper, there will always be a bid from the relevant central banks. And usually them in unison. Okay, so there will always be a bid for treasury paper of whatever country. Um, but there is a price to pay for that. And you have to look at it in real terms, obviously, at some points. 
but what people don't realize is that um, a declining interest rate environment destroys, destroys capital. So here, here again we have um, Procter and Gamble, and this is the price of this is a chart of a bond that they issued um, at the beginning of 2012. They issued it at um, a par, pretty much, um, but it's now trading at 100, 103. And it was a, um, what was it? It was a $1 billion issue, uh, which is peanuts for them. I mean, they make $15 billion per annum in operating profit. Okay. But the curious thing is that it's now trading at 103. Um, <clears throat> so some might say, what's the problem in that? Okay. Well, the problem is that if they had waited five or six months, they could have got uh, an extra an extra three percent for their uh, debt issue on the nominal value that they issued. So they could have got an extra thirty million dollars by uh, waiting. And you think, well, okay, thirty million dollars is not much. I'm going through the arguments by which people try to not understand that falling interest rates are bad. Okay, so bear with me. Okay, so they'll say, well, you know, 3%, not much, it's 30 million. On an operating profit of 15.8 billion, um, who cares? You know. Uh, but the point is that Procter & Gamble con constantly issues debt. And they issued a $600 million, $600 million bond in 2006, currently trading at um, 118. So they lost out on a lot more there. And I've just picked two examples, okay? You, you pick any company like Procter & Gamble or Unilever or Nestle, they've all gone through this kind of, um, this kind of uh, thing. So all of that money has been lost out on. Okay, and the person that benefits from the falling interest rate is not you, it's the next person who's going to do your job, basically, or your business. Because they get to issue the debt at the lower rate and they get the extra capital. But then if the interest rate keeps on falling, they're put in the same position as that guy was beforehand, okay? And then they're the ones who lose out. Okay, so in Procter & Gamble's case, the, the set of companies like Procter & Gamble is not that big. You've only probably got about 10 companies globally which are like Procter & Gamble, Unilever, Nestle, Johnson & Johnson, Henkel, you know, that kind, of, um, that kind of company. But the point is, though, that in that set, you're act that, that whole set is benefiting from an interest rate 
form, as it were, that each person in that set is being penalised at, um, at each moment. Okay, and this isn't just a trite example with particular stocks here. The point is that um, this builds up in the system. Okay, you might be able to sell your product for a lower price. Okay, just to make sure you sell your product, because the next person who's doing your business managed to sell debt at a lower at a, at a, at a lower rate. Okay, so he can afford to sell his thing more cheaply than you can. Okay, and you will have to sell his. You will have to sell your thing at the same price in order to uh, in order to sell it. And there is only so long that you can actually do that for without uh, accumulating losses and having the uh, receivers called in. And this is what happened in 2008 with the whole financial system, effectively. The, the receivers were called in um, and they started printing credit like there was, um, there was no tomorrow. So, falling interest rates is not beneficial for the economy. It destroys capital. And anyone that thinks that treasury rates have to start escalating sharply, they're incorrect. Okay, they can keep on geometrically going towards zero forever. You can halve, halve again, and keep on halving indefinitely. Um, and that's where the problem lies. And again, we're not going to talk about it in detail now because that's for another lecture. The whole point about gold and the monetary system is that it acted as a, um, as a lever, as a self-correcting mechanism for interest rates. Okay, if interest rates got too high above the marginal productivity of general capital, then people would sell their capital equipment and invest it in the bonds, the gold bonds, bringing the interest rate down. And if interest rate was below time preference, marginal time preference, bonds, which are overvalued, would have been sold in exchange for um, productive capital equipment or the stock market. Okay? Um, and that was decided collectively by us, the group. We all chose gold as our unit of exchange, our medium of exchange and unit of account. We all chose that. It was no government that decided it should be gold. And that was how gold played its role. So you can just imagine the cumulative um, distortions that build up if you have a government that thinks it's its responsibility <coughs> to have a controlled interest rate, a fiat interest rate. The distortions that are bred into the system are so, so unbelievably large that um, what happened in 2008 was covered up so well by the, uh, the monetization of debt and uh, the extension of fiat to a new dimension of comprehension. Okay, that we didn't realise what would have happened if nothing, if they didn't do anything. 
you would have lost all of your deposits, basically. If you had a bank account, you wouldn't have had one for much longer. And that would have caused problems. Uh, huge social problems that would have caused. Okay? So there's a flip side to government's interaction. Okay, yes, they are manipulating the interest rate, but if they didn't do what they were doing, then we would have been in a lot worse, um, in a lot worse situation. So that's where I think um, I'll leave it for the moment. Um, it's, it's 10 to 5. Um, we'll break early and back at 5.30? In 15 minutes. In 15 minutes. <coughs> so 5.15. 5.15. All right. Thank you.